hey, Jay, where would you put Forge on an alignment grid? Hmm, true neutral, I think. You could maybe make a case for Lawful since he's got his own code, but it's not consistent and he changes sides a lot. Well, he gets possessed a lot. I don't know, Miles. I mean, Forge is a pretty mercenary dude. He wasn't possessed when he used his buddy's souls to open a portal to the void, and he wasn't possessed any of the times he collaborated with the government's anti-mutant agenda. What about Forge's on other worlds? Well, Age of Apocalypse Forge might be chaotic good, but Ultimate is definitely in the neutral camp. I mean, he built Magneto a giant machine to kill every human on Earth. Whoa. Again, some mercenary guy and the price was right. What could Magneto have offered him that was worth that? Canada. What?! I'm J. Rachel Edden. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 93 of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of our very favorite superhero soap opera. And this week, I am Skyping into the studio from sunny Florida, so if I sound a little off, it's probably because of that, or the fact that I'm running on four hours of sleep, not all of them in a row. Yeah, normally you're about three feet away from me when we record, and now you're, like, 3,000 miles away? How far is Florida I, from Oregon? I have no idea. It's about 3,000 miles, yeah. Um, I Well, I, I'm sort of a disembodied voice floating in the ether, as usual. So mm-hmm, that's true to the listeners. I mean, they won't know the difference. You'll just be a slightly I'm more everywhere. I am in the Internet. Oh, man. You're like a river in that one episode of Firefly with uh, Jubal Early. No, no. I'm like zero cool. That's our acid burn. Yeah. If, if you can be Both. if you can be a character from Hackers, you probably should be a character from acid Hackers. cool. Zero burn. Zero yeah, burn. Zero burn sounds like some kind of an artificial sweetener. It really does. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, being 3,000 miles apart aside, what are we talking about today? Today we are talking about New Mutants, and we have dodged the bullet of the saddest issue ever. We covered that two episodes ago, sort of on its own, but today we are looking at the context that surrounds that. So the stuff coming immediately after the death of Cypher in The Fall of the Mutants. So we'll be covering New Mutants number 62 and 63, and then 65 and 66. So what background do we need for this? Let's see, we've got most immediately some Magma and Nova Roma stuff, and it's been a really long time since we've seen those guys. Yeah, uh, Magma left the team pretty early on in Louise Simonson's run, and that wasn't necessarily the worst thing because she was a character that always suffered kind of short shrift as a member of the New Mutants. Claremont and Simonson didn't seem to really know what to do with her a lot of the time. She left around the time Bird Boy showed up, which was a really unfortunate trade as such things go. But she is these days attending the Massachusetts Academy. That is the Xavier Institute's kind of rival school. It's run by Emma Frost, and it's home to the New Mutants sort of rival counterparts, the Hellions. Other background stuff. Of course, we recently had the fall of the mutants, and that's where Doug Ramsey, Cypher, was shot and killed. His funeral was New Mutants number 64. We're going to be addressing some of the aftermath of that in the issues we're covering today. Cypher is not the only X character who died in the fall of the mutants. The X-Men also died. They came immediately back to life, but no one else in the world knows this. So as far as the new mutants, including Ileana Rasputin, whose brother Colossus was among the X-Men who sacrificed themselves, that team is entirely dead. And Magneto is super pissed at the new mutants for making the stupid decisions that led to Doug Ramsey dying. He also is refusing to let them go, specifically to let Ilyana go look for the X-Men. Because, you know, dead, meh, it's a comic book. The New Mutants realize this. Ilyana has tried to go looking for the X-Men already, and she's found she couldn't get past the barrier around Dallas. Yeah, that was during the fall of the mutants itself. Yeah. So right now the New Mutants are still going to the school that Magneto is the headmaster of, 
but they're getting more and more rebellious, certain members more than others. So follow the mutants, fallout aside, what else is going on? Well, let's see. Um, we mentioned magic and that she's having a lot of trouble with the fall of a mutant's fallout. And she's having trouble on multiple fronts because magic, as we all know, is the absolute ruler of a realm called Limbo, which is a hell dimension that she took over after falling into a portal there or getting kidnapped there as a small child and basically growing up there. Limbo has been infected with Warlock, with the Technarch's techno-organic virus, specifically Sim, who is Ilyana's former minion and now primary rival for rulership of Limbo, has been using this to sort of spread his claim. Ilyana's hold on Limbo is increasingly tenuous, and it's mostly reinforced by the presence of her soul sword there. Anytime that she pulls that out, anytime she manifests it, the techno-organic infection in Limbo continues to spread. Yeah, so right now we have a hell dimension that she has to go through every time she teleports, which is full of an increasing number of robot demons. These are not topics that typically overlap in fiction, so go New Mutants. We're going to see that plotline hit its climax. You know, I talked about this a while ago, I think specifically in context of X-Factor. But man, this era, it's hard to not look at everything and see the slow build to Inferno. Yeah, really, I would say Inferno is kind of the climax of the 80s. I mean, pretty much every plot line from the last many years is in some way building toward Inferno. Yeah, very much so. With all of that background out of the way, let's talk about the issues of the week. All right, so we're going to start with New Mutants number 62, which has nothing to do with any of that. New Mutants 62 follows Magma um, at the Massachusetts Academy. So she is at this point totally separate from the New Mutants, and it's specifically primarily about her relationship with one of the Hellions who's been kind of played up as the worst of them, and that is a guy named Empath. Now, this is kind of a weird and strange story. Like, you remember back in X-Men, where right after the fall of the mutants, instead of seeing what happens next, we instead get a sort of flashback issue of a letter Dazzler wrote? This is sort of yeah. the same thing. It kind of reminds me of that episode of South Park, where there was a cliffhanger that ended with them about to find out who Cartman's dad was, and then the next episode was just a dumb Terrence and Philip episode full of a bunch of fart jokes. I'm not going to say this comic is the equivalent of Terrence and Philip by any means, but it is that sort of, so we just had the fall of the mutants end, what happens next? Oh, here's something totally unreal related. Well, we're going to get that twice in a row, too, because issues 62 and 63 are both effectively standalones. We don't really see the aftermath of the fall of the mutants until 64, until Doug's funeral. But nonetheless, there's some good stuff in this one. So 62, yeah, like you were saying, it's all about Magma and Empath, who are students at the Massachusetts Academy. Empath has done some awful stuff before. Like, he's kind of a psychic rapist in a lot of ways. He's, he's really yeah, not Yeah, he is okay. more than kind of. He is a psychic rapist. He has the power to manipulate other people's emotions and desires, which he, we've seen him use with no scruples, basically, to get what he wants or to get what Emma Frost wants. Now, we talked a couple of episodes ago when we were covering X-Men about the Reavers, um, about how it's sometimes nice and fun to have these utterly irredeemable, like, mustache-twirling villains. And Empath is kind of like that, but in a really creepy, unpleasant way. He's just like a Nazi, zombie, horrible everything. Like, it's not so much that you love to hate him as that you just hate him. Well, he was until this issue, because this is the issue where we finally get some of his perspective. And it really changes things. One of the things that I keep coming back to, and I've talked about this before in context of New Mutants, I think, specifically is that I feel like this is a series, and especially Louise Simonson's run on it, that zeroes in on the fact that no one is the villain of their own story. You know, that most of the people who do absolutely and utterly and completely reprehensible and morally unjustifiable things, you know, are operating from their own perspective on those things. And the fact that this issue manages to the extent that it does 
to humanize Empath without excusing him really, really impresses me. I completely agree. So yeah, let's start off with this sort of framing story of this, because mostly it is about Magma and Empath. But when we start, it's the New Mutants getting a letter from them. That's sort of our window into their story. The full extent of the framing is that she's in Nova Roma with Empath and she's having a wonderful time. Yes, and so she sends back a letter, which is to say a scroll, like an actual, you know, Diablo slash oldie tinies scroll. How do you deliver a scroll? Like, do you put a stamp on it? Well, if you're in Nova Roma, I assume that you send it with like a magical eagle or some shit. We should talk about Nova Roma because we have not revisited that particular place in a while. And it's a tangle. Yeah, that was from like New Mutants number, what, six, seven, something like that. That was a really, long time really ago. Early on. We did a cold open on it. But again, that was way, way back. What is the deal with Nova Roma? Okay, so Nova Roma is one of those places that has been retconned back and forth and back and forth. But the short version is it is an ancient Roman colony that basically got stuck in ancient Roman culture until the present day. It was ruled over by a evil vampire lady named Celine. That's less relevant to this part. Well, and it's in South America. It's in the middle of the Amazon rainforest, right? Yeah, it's kind of like how the Savage Land just randomly happens to be stuck in Antarctica. It's just sort of there. Nobody knows about it. Yeah. Sure, why not? Mm -hmm. And yeah, it still basically follows Roman culture and custom. It's at a comparable technology level. They found Magma while searching for it. I think, oh, specifically Sunspot's mother, who's an anthropologist, stumbled across it. And the New Mutants were traveling with with her at the time. And uh, Magma decided to come back with them and study at the Xavier School and then more recently to transfer to the Massachusetts Academy because she likes the idea of basically going to rich kid prep school. Yeah, and she grew up as a, a kind of noble, as a senator's daughter in Nova Roma, so eh, it kind of makes sense. Yeah, so she's at the Massachusetts Academy now. She regales in her scroll letter delivered by a magical eagle of some sort, presumably. Presumably. There's not actually a magical eagle in the comic. We just decided. Uh, you know, read between the panels, people. And yeah. Uh, yeah, she's actually not having a great time there. She'd been on the New Mutants for so long, the rival team of the Hellions, that they still kind of see her as an enemy, as a rival. They do, and they see the New Mutants as sort of the less polished, sort of scrappier answer to their Hellfire Club-funded fuchsia-dressed... Yeah, God, the Hellion outfits are so great, still. (laughs) They're great. And and specifically, one of the things that's creating friction on the team is something that influenced her decision to go to the Academy in the first place, which is that there's something going on. There are She's got some kind of feelings for Empath, and he's got some kind of feelings for her. This is new. We've seen Empath manipulate other girls and use his powers to make them fall in love with him. We haven't really seen him genuinely like anyone, as far as I can tell ever. Pretty much. I mean, he respects Emma Frost sometimes, and that's about as far as positivity has ever gone with him. Well, at least he's afraid of her, which is maybe not exactly the same thing. And his powers don't really work on Amara, partly because she has better training in resisting psychic attacks because, you know, you go to this Xavier school, you pick that up, but partly because he's not going all out at her because, again, he has feelings for her. He's holding back. And that's one of the things that the other Hellions are getting on his case about while calling Amara a mutie, which is, I guess, short for new mutants, but it's kind of weird because they're all mutants. It's very confusing. Well, because it's an anti-mutant slur. We should pull apart the semiotics of that at some point, but I really don't want to do it over Skype on four hours of sleep. We'll get back to that one eventually, I'm sure. Magma's not fitting in, but fortunately for her, she gets a break almost immediately. She gets a summons from her father who wants her to head back to Nova Roma. And Emma Frost decides it would be a good idea for Empath to accompany her and to convince Senator Aquila that Amara should stay at the Massachusetts Academy because the suspicion is that she is being summoned home for good. Right. And also, she wants Empath to work his emotional manipulation magic to get some mineralogical treaties going on with Nova Roma to increase the wealth of the Massachusetts Academy and thus the Hellfire Club. Because, you know, Emma Frost, she she does things for reasons. 
Yeah, Emma Frost generally has seven or eight different motives going on at the same time. So they head to Buenos Aires, and the plane from there to Nova Roma gets struck by lightning and crashes. Struck by lightning? Jeez, who are they? Freaking, like, Scott and Lee Forrester? I mean, they have the worst transportation luck. Yeah. One thing I've learned is that if you're ever in an X-Men comic, just don't fly. It never goes well. You're going to crash, and you're probably going to crash somewhere you don't want to be. Oh, God, there's a point in the Morrison run where Cyclops just makes the offhand comment that he's walked away from more plane crashes than any other mutant. And I love the fact that there are so many they keep track. <laughs> it's true. Well, this is Cyclops. He keeps track of everything. He's got like a little folder with a, uh, a plane icon and a flame icon on the little pull tab that you can see on the shelf. It's just a spreadsheet. <laughs> exactly. Brushes um, with death. Yup, quite a few. And uh, so, yes, uh, Empath It's a different and... one for contact with literal personifications of death. <laughs> right. Well, hey, uh, Iceman had a contact with a literal personification of Oblivion, so I think he's still one up on Cyclops in that regard. Oh man, there's a lot going on in that miniseries. There is, but we digress. There's no way to talk about the Iceman miniseries without digressing. It is the most fundamental digression. It is. So the plane crashes, and Empath uses his powers to keep Magma calm as they crash, and they land and survive. The pilot, unfortunately, is not so lucky. It was a small uh, commuter jet, so the pilot is dead, they're alive, and those are the only people aboard. So they're left in the middle of the jungle in the very, very vague vicinity of Nova Roma. They're not, though. They went off course. It's a plot point that the plane has gone off course to avoid a storm that inevitably took it down anyway. Right, but I mean, you know, they're close enough to it that they can eventually get there before the issue's over, is my point. Hopefully, but they've got a series of obstacles in the way, the first one of which is that Amara refuses to use her powers to make any kind of beacon for fear of starting a forest fire, which I guess is reasonable. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, she grew up in the forest. She had actually left the city of Nova Roma because Celine, the vampire lady we mentioned, was murdering all the noble girls. Um, right, right. And lived as an Amazon in this sort of weird blackface. We don't like to talk about that part of the plot. It's really best just to yeah. ignore that part. Oh, man. That was a thing. She was running around in blackface when we first met her, wasn't she? But what that does mean is since she spent so much time in the jungle, she knows how to survive there. So she starts basically hunting for food, building shelter. Uh, chasing off vampire bats. Chasing vampire bats off of Empath while he sleeps, getting pelted with romantic coconuts by romantic monkeys. So that scene right there, I really love it because it reminds me of a scene in a Disney movie where there are like the cute animal sidekick types and they're singing some sort of song that only the viewers can hear, urging the main characters to get together and to fall in only, love. Only they're just throwing coconuts at them. You're stretching this premise pretty hard. Coconuts are a musical genre unto themselves. Just wait for Disney's first all-coconut musical. It's going to happen. I think they announced it for a couple years from now. And I'll stand by that. Okay. So anyway, they live in the jungle for a little while. And it becomes clearer and clearer that Amara doesn't really want to find Nova Roma. She keeps on coming up with excuses that, oh, you know, we can't go that way. Can't start a signal. Let's just get more lost. You know, screw it. Let's just live in the jungle forever and eat vampire bats and make out. Yeah, and you know, given what's waiting for her, that kind of makes sense. I can't say I blame her. I mean, yes, it's petty. Yes, it's juvenile. But we are talking about teenagers here, so I can kind of forgive them for being a bit juvenile. Well, you mentioned what's waiting for her, and this is the first that we've mentioned that, and it's the first that we hear of it in this issue when when Empath finally calls her out on it, because what she suspects is that she's been called back to Nova Roma to be married off. Yeah, that takes place after they uh, get attacked by a jaguar, or a jaguar, if you want to say it the fun way. Animar is worried that the bites will fester, and Empath just blows up at her. But surely you have some handy native remedy that will suffice? You're so superior here in your jungle, Amara. 
so self-sufficient, almost as if you don't want us to be rescued. And she tries to convince him that they need to stay. He tries to convince her first, you know, using logic of, no, seriously, we're going to die out here, and then finally gets fed up and tries to possess her. She manages to shake him off. Why? Why do you do this? You're afraid. You're hurt. You might die. I want to save you. I can feel how afraid you are. How I feel is my business. How I handle what I feel is my responsibility. And then she kisses him. And the ground cracks open because it's a really epic kiss. Well, actually, because she has, you know, like, earth powers that can pull lava forth. And I gotta say, Amara is half right here, but how she handles how she feels at this point is actively jeopardizing both of their lives, so no, I would say that's actually soundly his business by now. So they flee the uh, increasing forest fire, which to be fair, at least is some kind of a beacon, and Empath is kind of freaked out. Why did you kiss me? Did you want to? Did I make you want to? And this is a twist on the character we haven't seen This brings up, and this is a concept that comes up in context of the villain, the Purple Man, too, I think, most notably in Wade's Daredevil run, but it's used in the Jessica Jones TV series and a little bit in Alias as well, which is that when you're a character whose powers include influencing people, it's hard to tell when other people are acting on their own free will. How can you actually tell if someone genuinely likes you? I'm sorry, Mara. Sometimes I can't tell the difference. What other people feel is what I feel. They assault me with conflicting emotions, needs, desires, signals all around till I can't breathe. And I grab hold of one emotion, any emotion, and use it to block out all the others. And I'm in control. Not threatened. Not overwhelmed. Not afraid. I'm a coward, so I take the coward's way out. It's self-defense. It's rotten. But it lets me breathe. And this, for me, is what more than anything else suddenly makes Empath make sense. Again, the stuff he does is still inexcusable, but when you look at it from that angle as essentially trying to take control of an onslaught of other people's emotions and, you know, something that he'd have come into around adolescence and especially that was fostered by the less than scrupulous Emma Frost, he makes a lot more sense now and is, if not... Good, and distinctly not good, still sympathetic, which I really like. This is something I actually like about this issue in general, is that it makes me much more sympathetic to two characters for whom I care very little as a default. Exactly, yeah. I mean, Magma's never been the most interesting, and Empath has always just been horrible. But with this, they're kind of compelling, as is the relationship between them. Right, and it doesn't change them. It doesn't make Empath a better person. It just makes him more of a person. I really, really like that. I like characters who I sympathize with even when I don't want to. Like that feeling of uncomfortable empathy is, I think, a hallmark of really good fiction. So, yes, they wander through the jungle for a few days more, slowly dying of fever because they have horribly infected wounds from the jaguar until they're found. Why do you keep pronouncing it jaguar? It's just more fun that way. Try it. It's sort of like puma. Puma. Exactly. Puma. Jaguar. Is there a jaguar man who flies awkwardly and gets knocked the hell over? One can only assume. But regardless, our two jaguar-infected heroes are eventually found by Senator Aquila, and Magma introduces Empath to her father as her teammate and her friend. And that's where we leave them for a while. Meanwhile, in a dream in space. Okay, so this was our first post-Fall of the Mutants sort of standalone issue. The next one is super weird, you guys. 
I have trouble summarizing this issue because it's got so many layers of what the fuckery. Okay, so, flashback to New Mutants number 21. That was Slumber Party where Warlock first shows up. At one point, when Warlock is seen as sort of a monster before they realize he's a cute teenager robot dude, he inadvertently infects Ilyana with his techno-organic virus. And the next time we see her after she teleports away is when she comes back in a weird spacesuit armor thing and says it's a long story and she'll tell everyone later. Apparently now is later and everyone is the reader. Wow, I had completely forgotten that until we got to this point. That's more than three years ago that we're picking up this dropped thread. And given that this issue is co-plotted by Chris Claremont, who was writing New Mutants back then, part of me wonders if it was like a half-done script that he left around and, you know, Louise Simonson just picked up and finished and adapted. That would make a lot of sense. And if some of the framing was then turned into a dream sequence, because it starts with Ilyana studying in her room, trying to catch up. And in this context, she's still rooming with Kitty, which she was at the beginning of New Mutants. Exactly, yeah. And so Kitty sees the weird space armor suit thing in the corner of her room and asks about it. This space suit is pretty great. It's like a blue bodysuit with an orange bikini over it for some reason and a big, like, 50s-style bubble space helmet and a big weird ray gun. I, I would wear this thing. I would wear this it thing is, everywhere. It's straight off the cover of any given pulp novel. It's fantastic. Yeah, and in fact, the cover to this issue is kind of pulpy itself. Although it's oh, got, it really is. It's got Kitty in the armor for some reason, not Ilyana, but, you know, whatever. So, yeah, Ilyana's like, hey, no, I gotta study. You know, I have some catching up to do. I grew up in Limbo, and the book Larnan wasn't too good there. I mainly learned about, like, murder and betrayal. She had a lot of books in limbo. It's just that they were all, you know, Necronomicons. <laughs> exactly. You know, AP Necronomicon, volume one of two. Hey, look, that is a difficult exam, okay? Placing out of college-level necromancy takes some serious, serious studying. She got a four on it. That's solid. Yeah, yeah, that's decent. Yeah, yeah Kitty starts tickling Ilyana, doing her fake Russian accent. We have ways to make you talk. And they accidentally phase through Ilyana's bed into uh, Colossus's room down below. Colossus is getting out of the shower and is naked and covers himself with a towel and blushes, and it's adorable, and the girls crack up. I think we can pretty much take the crack about gal pals and subtext as read at this point, but that. Pretty much. And actually, one thing that I think makes this worse is the guest art team, which is Bo Hampton and Joe Rubenstein. They have this sort of, I would almost call it like a good girl pinup art style. Like, it's they very do, yeah. its very early X-Men, but it's also very much that, and it's a lot of fun for a story like this. So, Ilyana does relent and does tell the story to Kitty about New Mutants number 21, and how she teleported into Limbo because this techno-organic virus from the weird robot monster was starting to consume her arm. So, what happened during the bit of time when Ilyana disappeared before she came back with the spacesuit? Well, uh, her soul armor started to protect her body and halt the infection, but then she was stuck in Limbo. Now, she wasn't nearly as in control of Limbo at this point, so she was pretty quickly confronted by this giant tree-looking demon straight out of a Jack Kirby cover called Skunge that attacks her, at which point she inadvertently touches it, infects it with a techno-organic virus, and kills it. So, question, is this what introduced the techno-organic virus to Limbo? Because I thought that happened in New Mutants 47 when they fought Magus. Yeah, I was kind of wondering about that as well, because we don't see any signs of the techno-organic virus before Magus shows up, but it was definitely at least there briefly, so, meh, hard to say. Maybe it just planted the brief seeds, and Magus, the gardener of death, helps them blossom into metal murder! I can assume. Wow. Have you been saving that? No, no, that was just off the top of my head. This is the way the Miles brain works. So speaking of metal things, she's like, well, hey, I'm infected by this. I gotta stop it. Time to cut off my own arm with my soul sword. 
But just as she is about to sever her own arm, she wakes up in a nightgown in her bedroom at the school, the one she shared with Kitty. But all of her stuff is gone, and Kitty's stuff is there, and it's very confusing and weird. So she gets dressed in Kitty's clothes, and she's looking around, trying to figure out what's going on. Her arm is numb, the one that was infected with the techno-organic virus. So she comes up with a makeshift sling, and just then Kitty barges in in a blue version of her old Ariel costume. And screams and calls the rest of the X-Men in. And oh, wait, are- wait, wait, though. No, it's a new Kitty costume. This is the first time we've seen the blue one. Take a drink. Yes, indeed, because technically in this era, it should have been a slightly different one. But the X-Men all show up and none of them recognize her. And it's super creepy and kind of nightmarish until Ileana starts to realize, wait a minute, usually I teleport in space. Sometimes I accidentally teleport in time. Is well, this the not, past? It's got to be because it's not just that the X-Men don't recognize her. It's that we're seeing a lineup of X-Men that we haven't seen for a pretty long time. Who have we gotten with the X-Men who she runs into at this point? It's Cyclops, Colossus, Nightcrawler, Storm, Wolverine, and Kitty. The so old- this is basically the all-new, all-different. So this is God Loves Man Kills Era X-Men. Thereabouts. Specifically, it's Brood Saga Era X-Men. And that's important. You're going to want to remember that because we're going to come back to it very soon. Exactly. So they lock her up in a bedroom and Kitty takes her clothes back and they just give her a bathrobe, I guess, until Professor Xavier gets home that night to scan her mind. She tries to do some magic, tries to teleport out of there, and she is just too weak. She can't even conjure a simple pentagram. I mean, shit, I can conjure a pentagram whenever I feel like it. I can conjure a pentagram in my sleep. That's easy. Uh, Well, by conjure, do you mean draw with a sharpie? Uh, Hey, you know, each of us conjure in different ways. I use sharpie, Mancy. No, no, I'm down with that. As a longtime zinster, I am well acquainted with sharpie, Mancy. And pretty soon, she gives up and goes to sleep. Lockheed actually wakes her up. Lockheed was with her when she teleported into Limbo. As soon as the door opens and the X-Men come in, he breathes fire on all of them and gestures her to get the hell out of there, saying that something isn't right, or gesturing that something isn't right. We should note, too, that earlier she had asked after where Lockheed was, and the X-Men hadn't known what she was talking about. They'd assumed that she'd meant the jet, which is a, a Lockheed Martin jet. And so she runs, the X-Men chasing her, and it's actually really creepy because, uh, as she does, Cyclops watches after her. Professor Xavier's orders. The girl is evil, a threat to us all. She must be destroyed. And the X-Men do their best to do exactly that. Storm turns outside into, like, a wintry hellscape. Wolverine comes after her, interestingly enough, with a knife, not his claws, and she KOs him with one punch. Whoa, so something weird is going on here. And she notes, too, that these X-Men aren't very good fighters. Cyclops has terrible aim. They're not working as a team, really, at all. Now, one thing I also want to point out about this scene. So, Ilyana's in a bathrobe, right? Because, like, Kitty took her clothes back. And there are... This was such a dick move. It was totally a dick move. Although that was before it was wintry hellscape outside. It's still a dick move. A random stranger shows up. You don't, like, strip them naked and lock them in a room. You let them keep the t-shirt and shorts they're borrowing. Come on. You would think. But in this escape and fight scene, Ilyana's bathrobe kind of slides to the side a few times. We see her undergarments, and this could be, like, super creepy and prurient. Like, this could be, you know, your standard anime-style panty shot thing, but it's actually really not. And I want to talk a little bit about why I think it's not. It really reinforces the nightmare logic of this. It feels like this is the kind of scenario where suddenly things are like the past and no one, you don't quite know these versions of people. And of course you're in your underwear in that situation. Clearly. There's that. Logic dictates. But I think it also makes it clear just how vulnerable she is. I mean, she's without her magic. She's without her soul sword or her soul armor. And she doesn't know what's going on. And she doesn't even have pants. Right. And so the contrast of that and how well she does against the X-Men really shows just how resourceful she can be. So I'd like to christen this the tasteful narrative panty shot. And so she runs until Lockheed breathes a wall of fire and just sort of disintegrates all the trees and stuff around her and reveals what she couldn't see before, which is a great big wall, which now has a hole blasted in it. And what's on the other side of the wall is 
weird science fiction ruins. It's the remains of an enormous hollowed out spacecraft. And so they explore for a little bit, looking for food. They end up on this really long moving walkway for almost an hour. As someone who spent a lot of today in airports, this sort of felt homey to me. Well, um, were you led by a dragon into a weird tower that turned out to be the cockpit slash bridge of a giant city-sized spaceship? Because that's what happens to Ilyana. Actually, yeah, they've really souped up PDX lately. Oh, damn. Nice. I should stop by the airport. But yeah, and she sees the dead crew on this bridge. There's a woman wearing a very familiar spacesuit, the one we saw at the beginning. And pretty quickly, she's attacked, as one is, by the brood. So what this most immediately evokes is the brood saga. We know that the brood are capable of creating these complex illusions. The lineup of the team lines up, and again, now here she is fighting a brood queen. So the fight doesn't go well. She has to teleport away briefly to heal herself and teleport back. When she does, she finds that the bridge is mostly burned to a crisp. Lockheed apparently was fighting back pretty hard. So she grabs the now only full of ashes spacesuit of the dead pilot she found, which always seemed kind of gross. Like, wouldn't she be super dirty inside that thing because it's full of ashes? Well, whatever was in there was incinerated, and what she knows is that the spacesuit is tough enough to withstand Lockheed's fire, and so presumably tough enough to withstand the brood, and it's the best option she's got, and I guess better ashy than infected with a brood embryo. That's a very good point. That's actually, my grandmother always used to say that. It was an, a sort of an aphorism. I remember that. And so she finds the brood hunched over Lockheed about to implant Lockheed with a brood embryo. And the brood, being a good villain, explains what's going on. Yeah, it's such a good villain plot. So this actually takes place, we find out, in the aftermath of the brood saga. Now, for the full backstory on that, you can go back and listen to episode 20. It's called The Brood They Carried. But basically, this brood escaped when its homeworld was destroyed. And one of the things that the brood did during the brood saga was get DNA samples from the X-Men, which this one has used to clone its own version. It's raised them as their Professor Xavier. It's using them to gestate its embryos. And so, yeah, these are not the original X-Men. These are clones of the brood saga era X-Men. Unfortunately, as often happens when villains do their villain speeches about how they've been deceiving their underlings, the underlings were like, you know, right there and overheard the whole thing. And so they fight and kill the brood with the help of Lockheed. Unfortunately, they're still infected. Wolverine says to his friends, We gotta face facts. We're lab specimens and monster fodder. Each one of us has one of the suckers growing in him. Better kill us, Ilyana. Now, while you can, before more people die. I want to step back a little bit. I want to talk about the art in this issue. You mentioned, you know, we've got a, a different art team on this one. And the look of these X-Men is so date-specific and so dated, or would be to readers coming into this currently. And it works so well. It does, yeah. It's got that same early 80s feel that the Brood Saga itself did. That same very basic, straightforward, not very exaggerated artistic style of that era. It just evokes it gloriously. So for old time's sake, should we do some kind of a Tim O'Brien riff here? Oh man, no. And I actually got a good reason for this, which is that in this context, I feel like we've moved more into Luis Bunuel territory for reasons that we'll go into momentarily. Yeah, good point, good point. Um, this is like the discreet charm of the brood. <laughs> Perfect. So Ilyana doesn't let the X-Men kill themselves. She refuses to kill them. She's like, hey, I got this, bros. Teleports them into Limbo, where she's wearing a super rad sorceress dress, and runs her soul sword through them, killing the brood embryos inside each one, and leaving only perfectly healthy, cloned X-Men. 
Should that work? You know, it's kind of ambiguous how the Soul Sword works, and this whole issue is like weird dream logic, so I'm just going to go with, sure, why not? That's true. So speaking of weird dream logic, these clones of X-Men have no place on Earth, so Ilyana teleports them back to watch the ship and the cold sleep passengers, and then wakes up at home with Kitty, just continued in New Mutants 21, and then she wakes up for real... Because apparently what she was dreaming was that she was telling Kitty about this interstitial adventure she had in New Mutants 21, which included a dream sequence of its own. Yeah, and this is weird because this could have easily just been a flashback. So to turn it into this like dream sequence of Ileana telling Kitty about what happened just seems like one unnecessary layer too many. Again, but well. But it's a really cool issue. Guys, this issue is awesome. I enjoyed it way more than I remembered enjoying it from the first time I read it. Highly recommended, totally stands alone, gives all the context you need. And my favorite thing about it is that it means there's still this group of clone X-Men out in space somewhere. I would read the hell out of that series. Oh my god, I would write the hell out of that series. (laughs) Marvel, if you're listening, do it. I don't know if Marvel has ever even done anything with these guys. Like, I don't know if they've ever come back, but they're presumably out there somewhere. Like, there is a Brood Saga era group of partially trained X-Men running around having space adventures. I love everything about this idea. Right? Yeah. How has this not been revisited? So those are the two sort of one-shot intermissions following the fall of the mutants. The next issue, if we were going in order, would be New Mutants 64, which we covered in episode 91 a couple ago. That's the one with Doug's funeral, which also pulls us back into the ongoing story, continuing with New Mutants number 65, Demons. And as with 63, this and the next issue actually are largely an Ilyana story because Ilyana is dealing with the fall of the mutants on two fronts. Not only has she lost her friend and teammate, Doug Ramsey, but she's lost her brother, Colossus. And we have seen her resolve since she can't bring him back that she is going to kill the man who sacrificed his soul, namely Forge. And Magneto will have none of it. Judging by the televised accounts, the X-Men sacrificed themselves voluntarily. And even if they had not, the X-Men aren't my charges. Charles Xavier left me as headmaster of the school he founded, in charge of training and protecting all of you. Then Charles Xavier messed up. He shouldn't have left you in charge of, of, of a bunch of hamsters. I gave you the chance to help, and you blew it. And if you won't do something, I will. And so she, as she so often does at the end of arguments to get the last word, teleports away. And she's teleporting here to someone we haven't seen her interact with in a very long time, and that is her very best friend, Kitty Pride, who is on Muir Island still recovering from injuries from the mutant massacre. And Kitty is still semi-phased. Ilyana expects that Kitty, who is hot-headed, who is likewise, you know, doubly bereaved, who's lost one of her best friends and her entire team, save for Nightcrawler, will be eager to go off on the revenge mission, but Kitty is not. Look, I know about the X-Men and Peter. How could I not know? What happened in Dallas is still all over TV. And Moira told us about Doug. But Ilyana, the X-Men were involved in a kind of war, and in a war people die. I almost died when we fought the Marauders. So did Nightcrawler and Peter. It it gives you a different perspective. Perspective, ha! Huh? You just mean you don't care. And, and Magneto doesn't care. Nobody cares but me. I really like this rendition of this very passionate Ilyana, and it makes sense. I mean, she lost all of the X-Men when she was a little girl, when she was in limbo. She watched them get torn apart by demons, get corrupted and killed by Belasco. And so to lose the X-Men again, right around the same time that she lost Doug Ramsey, one of her teammates, it makes sense that she would just sort of snap. 
I like how childish she is in this. In a lot of ways, Ilyana is the most mature of the New Mutants. She's certainly been through a huge amount. She's had to grow up in a lot of ways that none of her teammates have. But at the same time, she's also missed out on a lot. Like, she's been fighting for her life in limbo since she was six. And in some ways, she's kind of stuck at that age or close to mentally. Like, she doesn't have the emotional sophistication of a lot of her peers. Exactly, yeah. And so she then teleports away, because once again, that's how Ayana wins arguments that she can't win verbally, into the New Mutants attic where she sees a lot of them suiting up in the costumes that they put together after they decided to go out and be a super team on their own and not work with Magneto anymore. And these are still pretty dubious, but she heads up to grab her own costume and the rest of her team dives in after her and ends up in Limbo. And oh man, Limbo is not in good shape. Oh man, it looks like a Hieronymus Bosch landscape. It is super messed up looking and it's full of robot demons. It's awesome. It's boshier than usual. It's like somewhere between Bosch and Heavy Metal Magazine. I feel like I should always give Brett Blevins credit where it's relevant, because readers' opinions of him are not always so great in New Mutants, and he does Limbo beautifully. It is a glorious nightmare of weird. Limbo has lost a lot of its structural integrity. Like you said, it's always been a sort of nightmarish landscape, but here it almost ceases to seem to operate by standard rules of gravity and function. It's just fractured. It kind of reminds me of the Danger Room in that one episode of Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends. That was a weird oh, episode. Oh man, it totally does. Yes, yes. It's 80s animation on acid Limbo. And so the whole time, the older New Mutants, especially Cannonball, are trying to convince Liana not to go kill Forge, which is what she's you know got her heart set on at this point. He'll eat you for breakfast. We lost Doug, Ilyana. We don't want to lose you, too. Sunspot has different ideas. We won't lose her if we all help. Magneto thinks we're worthless. Well, I say we prove him wrong. Let's go do some murder, New Mutants. <laughs> That'll teach him that we're responsible enough to be left home alone. <laughs> but I love this right here because, you know... We talked a lot in our first Louise Simonson episode about how the characters all felt like both very young and like they were all the same kind of young. And now we're starting to see the dynamic that we're used to from Claremont's run. We see Sam as the big brother, Roberto as the hot-headed younger sibling. Like, these are the personalities that we spent 50-something issues with before Simonson took over. And at this point, I think the book is almost as good as it was under Claremont. Speaking of Simonson getting her footing, this scene also takes a brief detour to address what one of my most pressing questions coming out of the Fall of the Mutants issue was, which is why the hell Danny, who's a Valkyrie who can see death specters, wasn't able to warn Doug of what was coming. Yeah, she points out that she can't do that in the middle of battle, and that's another reason they shouldn't go and fight Forge, who's a very powerful sorcerer. So, plot hole closed. Thanks, Louise Simonson. Ultimately, the New Mutants decide that they're going to go with Ilyana if just to protect her from herself and inevitably from Forge. And she makes the cataclysmic decision to take her soul sword with her. Now, this is the only thing. Her soul sword is what has been holding back the techno-organic infection in Limbo. And without it, Sim is free to continue to spread his influence. In his words, and what he says here manages to predict Inferno to an unsettling degree. Forge's portal is nothing compared to the one that Sim will open with the Dark Child's unwitting help. But it's worth it to Ileana, and she teleports with the New Mutants back to Dallas, which they can now reach, where they take on and are quickly and easily bested, at least initially, by Freedom Force. Yeah, Freedom Force being the government-sponsored team that used to be the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. And the fight is, you know, it's a cool fight, whatever, but there is one part I want to mention here, which is where Sunspot accidentally knocked a wall over on some members of Freedom Force, and Forge, who's being protected by Freedom Force, asks Destiny, who's a precog, why she didn't, you know, warn anybody. I saw the blow coming and chose not to stop it. 
Those bricks won't hurt Stonewall, nor avalanche through his armor, or affect the outcome of this fight. But Spiral's humiliation is balm to my soul. I find her totally insufferable. I really like this version of Destiny. She can predict the future, and she uses that to, like, you know, throw shade on jerks. Right? Petty Destiny is 100% my jam. Petty Destiny is my 80s hair metal band. Okay. <laughs> and as the fight continues, as Ilyana is about to stab Forge, we find out, nope, that wasn't really Forge. That was Mystique disguised as Forge. It's of always course. Mystique. It's it always, always Mystique. This should really be a drink cue. It should. And then Forge himself does decide to enter the fight by yelling down, Perhaps you would be willing to discuss the problem with me! But he's yelling it down from, like, this very nearby giant mountain with a big flaming red sky. And, like, I half expect there to be, like, you know, chrome tailpipes bursting forth fire and guitar solos being played. It's really metal. I don't know how they didn't notice that, like, 20 feet away. Yeah, it's a very brutal legend. Although, if he's yelling down, it would be like, maybe you should take it up with me. <laughs> he can project really well. He's a podcaster. He's got experience. Well, he's presumably got some kind of echo effect. Would that be ghost sound? Uh, Yeah, that's just a cantrip. It's level zero. It's real easy. He yeah, learned that early that's, on. That's that's fair. Yeah. And up they all port to, again, discuss the problem. Although before that, Mirage accidentally pulls up Destiny's greatest fear, which again gives us a glimpse of what will ultimately become Inferno. We are steadily, steadily on the road to Inferno now. That rail car is breaking away and starting to run. Yeah, and Destiny says at this point that it's going to happen, and the only hope of the entire world is that Ilyana can learn a little from this to somehow fight back against this hell that is coming to Earth. We'll see how that goes. Hint, hell is indeed coming to Earth, and it's going to be pretty awesome, but also pretty terrible. It will bring anthropomorphic trash cans and the least dignified havoc moments of all time. So, yes, and here's the big showdown. This is what Ilyana has been alluding to for probably four or five issues at this point, really ever since the X-Men died. She confronts Forge. It's a sorcerer's duel, and it is awesome. Yeah, and their fight is starting to affect the surrounding environment, too, although right now all it's doing is giving surrounding rocks evil faces. Yeah, again, little bits of hints of limbo to come where everything is going to get animated by demons. And Forge's magic is terrestrial, so he's got the home field advantage on Earth. So Ilyana decides she's going to take the fight to limbo, where Forge immediately manifests some kind of amazing translucent astral armor. He's got a mask, a shield, a spear... And some fairly impressive furry pants. Is any of that actually Cheyenne? Like, he's implying that it's Cheyenne magic, but I have no idea what that's supposed to look like, so I don't know if Brett Blevins just invented something, or if it was really well-researched, or what. I do not know, and I am not going to hazard a guess in my relative ignorance of that. It's also possible that whatever he's manifesting is also twisted through limbo. Uh, so true. it's not what he would picture. It could be that it's become something else um, by virtue of the relocation. Only a demon could have pants that furry. Sorry, I, I what, have no follow up with because it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and the New Mutants try to interfere. They try to stop her. They've been trying this entire time. And so she calls up a spell of vines to bind them so she can get down to the business of killing Forge without them getting in her way. The vines not only bind them, but they begin as she gets angrier and angrier to slowly suffocate them. And this is a really cool symbol of Ilyana's dark qualities, her dark child qualities, dwarfing her light side. I mean, loyalty has always been a defining trait for her. She cares so deeply about her friends and her family. And so the fact that she's inadvertently harming them in her quest for revenge against somebody else, it's symbolism. Yeah, it's sort of a question of loyalty to the living versus loyalty to the dead. 
Uh, yeah, that's a good way of putting it, agreed. And so she and Forge have this really awesome fight using all sorts of astral stuff and magic stuff, but also verbally sparring, as any good comic book opponents should be. And they both make some really good points, because the fact is they're both kind of screw-ups. They've both made some really bad mistakes and let their emotions get in the way of what was right. Oh man, yeah, these two are the bad decision dinosaurs of the current X lineup. They are, yeah. Forge is trying to defend himself. Do you think I wanted that confrontation with the adversary? That in winning against him I lost nothing? I lost Storm, the woman that I love. Loved? You stole her powers. You killed her. You have a funny way of loving. And as the fight continues, Ilyana's scrying glass, which is, you know, her little mirror-y thing that she can look at things that are far away and limbo, uh, it shatters and sort of turns into super spiky armor for her, like it turns into armor add-ons. Now she basically looks like Strife, if Strife was the Dark Child. Oh god, if Strife was the Dark Child- why did you even say that set of words? <laughs> Do you know what you have just done? You have created a continuity singularity. Oh no, I hope Marvel wasn't listening to that one. This is how the universe ends. <laughs> like, th we pinpoint it, we trace it back. This is like the Beyonder as Claw coming up with his story on Battleworld. Miles saying, what if Strife was the Dark Child? We can pinpoint this as the beginning of the end. I'm so sorry. Why didn't Destiny tell me? Oh. What have you done, Miles? What have you done? <laughs> oh, do I get my own angry narrator thanks? Sweet. <laughs> this isn't thanks, man. This is just a vintage angry narrator. But anyway, Forge actually says, hey, I didn't mean to mess up your scrying pool. I'm not trying to do this. I'm just trying to defend myself. Yeah, you're accident prone, aren't you, Magic Man? A real hard luck case. And he starts to realize what's going on. He starts to see the parallels between him and Ilyana. You're a child, like I was back in Nam, wielding magics as deadly, driven by as great a rage, as powerful a grief. And if you choose to use your magic in this way, how have I the right to destroy you too in order to stop you? If that's the choice, let me die instead. And she stabs him, but not entirely. She stabs him with the energy version of her soul sword, so it wipes out his magic defenses, but it doesn't kill him yet. She's raising her sword to deliver the final blow, to actually kill him. When she sees a vision of herself, just a glimpse of a reflection, looking very, very different. Yeah, now this is the first time we've seen the Dark Child in its purest form. And what's really going on is that Mirage, who's getting, you know, gradually devoured by those vines, is using her powers to project Ilyana's greatest fear. But this is, in fact, the ultimate Dark Child. It's Ilyana, but she's covered in red scales. She's a demon. She's this sort of reptilian, fork-tongued, cloven-hooved creature. And that's a figure we're going to see a lot going forward. But it does stop Ilyana in her tracks. It does, and she realizes, too, that the new mutants have been almost devoured by the vines. She's able to free them. Meanwhile, the demons are agitating for her to go ahead and strike the killing blow to kill Forge to embrace her demonic destiny. We've seen that from the start. They are, you know, the fairly literal devils on her shoulder, trying to get her to succumb to Limbo and to her demon persona. But this time she refuses. She frees the new mutants. She spares Forge and she drops him off back in Dallas, basically saying, you know, you deserve to have to live with yourself after that. And as she teleports away, he watches her. You're lucky, Dark Child. Had I had friends like yours around me in my youth, perhaps I would not have become the accident-prone man that I am. They head back to the mansion, and what they discover once they're there is that Ilyana's not the only one who is taking on a villain form. Magneto 
has gone back to his old red and purple armor. Although now it's got a sweet M in the center. I guess he watched Apocalypse oh, God. and you know, thought that was cool. Magneto, oh. no, 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 don't do that. So the Dark Child's leading up to what we're going to see in the future. Magneto wearing his old supervillain costume is leading up to what we're going to see in the future. And the little aside that this issue ends on is to, as we meet Gossamer and Spider, but more on them next time we talk about the New Mutants. Meanwhile, you've got questions. T-Princess13 asks... I'm really curious why Wolverine's teeth aren't adamantium. Is it a bone marrow thing, or is it to preserve his brilliant and bestial smile? Our theory, since as far as I know this has never been explored explicitly in canon, is the latter. The Weapon X program experimented on T-Max as a black ops group in hopes of making the perfect assassin. And that included a certain degree of undercover capability that would have been pretty seriously compromised by an adamantium grin. Yeah, I mean, a a mouth of teeth that shiny, that's really only inconspicuous if you're an extra in a rap video. As for why they didn't do something about Wolverine's distinctive hair, my take is that science can only do so much. Alright, so Sophie fights the 1218 universe asks, Which of the new mutants do you think would be best to have at a party, both from the original team and the 2003 team? Okay, from the original team, I'm gonna say Boom Boom. Everyone forgets this, she was totally a member of the New Mutants toward the end of the run. I mean, you'd end up with, like, a wrecked house, and the cops would get called at least twice, and a person or two would end up in the ER for alcohol poisoning and maybe mild explodedness, but it would be, like, the most memorable party of all time. That sounds terrible. See, I want to party with Sam Guthrie, because I feel like he'd be really chill, and it would be cool, and, like, it wouldn't be, you know, a big rager. It would just be just sort of a nice, quiet, friendly party. I feel like he would be a good guy to have around. You know, he's friendly, he's really social, but he'd also be good at at keeping things chill. That's legit. Now, as far as the 2003 team, and this is the team that turned into uh, New X-Men Academy X for a while, and then just New X-Men, I would say David Elaine, Prodigy. So his mutant, yeah, pa- his mutant yeah. power, yeah, he knows everything and has the skills of everybody around him. Now, he's not a mutant anymore. I'm going for back when he was. But yeah, when he had those powers, he felt like he didn't earn his knowledge or skills, so he like tried extra, extra hard in college. I feel like, similarly, he would try extra, extra hard to party hard. And plus, he'd be able to come up with super awesome mixed drinks by combining the mixology knowledge of all the other guests to come up with new combinations. So there you go. <laughs> He's also just a neat dude. Yeah, he's so a real, I feel he's okay really about guy. having him there. Now, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast via Patreon, and some of those tiers of support come with thanks on the podcast from a range of fictional characters. I am turning it over today, I believe, to the Brood Queen. They think they are the X-Men you know, Ilyana Rasputin. And they think I am their revered Professor Xavier. But Stephen Morton and Moon's Reign are, in reality, cloned from DNA samples of their real selves. Delicious irony. The Brood's greatest enemies are now ready to die for the Hive. Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. New episodes of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art, recaps, and much more. Like Chase said, our show is totally listener-supported and ad-free, and that's made possible by our generous Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to support the podcast and help us do what we do and pay rent, check out the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com. Next week, I will be away from the podcast, but Miles will be joined by guest host Elizabeth Alley to talk about Australian Wolverines, Old Lady White Queens, and the arcade game based on them. At long last, Pride of the X-Men. 